<laughs> glad to be back and be with you again. And I'm also glad, glad that Pastor Joe and Janet had, uh, had the opportunity to get a vacation. It's uh, six weeks, uh, six years, sorry, is too long. Six weeks is too long. Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, who you for who you are. And Lord, I just pray for your spirit that, uh, Lord, we, we can't understand who you are. We just sang about the incomparable God, and there's no one like you. There's no words for you, Lord. When it comes through your written word and by your spirit, come and give a, a revelation of who you are this morning. Encourage your people. Anoint your word. Lord, you have something clear to say to us today and build our faith. Encourage us, God, in, in, your, in your greatness and your love. Lord, just reveal who you are through your word. Just breathe on your word once again and help us. To, just help me to have words to describe who you are. And when we cannot describe, you're beyond our understanding. No one can fathom the understanding and wisdom of our God. So, Lord, give us words by your word how to describe you. And just encourage your people and, and build us up in the faith, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> so I want to talk about uh, prophecy and our incomparable God. We sang that song, that there is no one like him. Uh, it's a big <laughs> biblical theme, but pro the connection with prophecy. There's a relationship between prophecy and God being uh, our incomparable God. So we'll start with chapter 40, verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my peoples, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So here we've been following, if you follow Isaiah just before, he's been talking about King Hezekiah. Isaiah lives around 700 B.C. Now in chapter 40, right to the end of the book, in chapter 66, Isaiah jumps into the future. He jumps 160 years into the future, and he's talking, he assumes as, as if the exile to Babylon of Israel has already happened. So now he's, he's, he's into the future, and uh, he's talking to, prophetically, he's talking to uh, the people of Israel who are um, in, in exile because of their sin, because of their idolatry, and then the Lord speaks a word of comfort, that there is restoration after her punishment. There's been punishment, there's been judgment, she's paid for her sins. Uh, but now he wants to speak a word of comfort, comfort to Jerusalem. He will restore Jerusalem. So that's the context of our text. It will be in chapters 41 and 42, just uh, parts of them. But that, that gives you the context. So we'll start in chapter 41, verses 1 to 2. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. So this is a a court. He's calling them to the court. Who was stirred up the uh, one from the east, calling him in righteousness to a service? He hands uh, nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. So <clears throat> here we, we get the first. There's two people when we talked about, okay, the context is the restoration of Zion or Jerusalem. God is going to uh, restore his people and bring them back to Jerusalem uh, through two people. And the first one here is Cyrus, King Cyrus, the king of Persia. He, um, he, the Lord used him to build, uh, build the, the greatest empire in history to, to that time. Um, 
and he, he had victory after victory. Every, every battle he was never, he, he passed unscathed, like the scripture says, and he had an incredible victory in, in war. But God's purpose in the whole thing was for his people, uh, as we'll see. Um, he conquered Babylon as one of his long list of conquests. He conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And by doing that, he was able to set God's people, God's people free. So this is what it, the God is after. In verse 1, um, he, he, the Lord summons, uh, as I said, the, the idols to a, to a court. And then uh, in verse 2, he says, who, who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? So this is important to understand what's going on here, because for the next uh, eight chapters, this is a major theme. Cyrus is a major theme. But the court, this court, this trial that God is summoning the nations to and summoning uh, Israel to is a major theme in, in the, for the next eight chapters. So there's a trial going on here, and God wants to know. He wants to establish the truth about who is the one who predicted the coming of Cyrus and then fulfilled that prophecy. Who is the one who predicted the coming of Cyrus? The idols or, or the Lord of Israel? It's a big deal for God. He's calling all the nations here to establish the truth on this matter. He says he call, he's calling um, someone. He's calling this one from the in righteousness. There's a lot of calling going on in chapters 41 and 42. He calls the servant Israel. Uh, he calls an, another unidentified servant, and he, and he calls Cyrus. So what this indicates is that these incredible victories that Cyrus has, uh, these are initiated by God. There's no glory to man here. I mean, it's incredible what happened, but the, why it happened was because God called him. God initiated the activity of Cyrus. God gave him the victory. So behind this whole thing, we see the sovereignty, the lordship of our God over history. I mean, this was a major deal in history. I have a master's in history. I teach it church history. This is, the Persian Empire is a big deal. <clears throat> but who's behind the whole thing? Who gets all the glory? Our God. He's the one who called Cyrus. He's the one who initiated the activity of history. He's the sovereign Lord over all history. This is what he wants Israel to know. Why? Because Israel's depressed. Israel's discouraged. Israel's been, uh, in this case, jumped in the future in exile. Where is our God? We're kicked out of the promised land. Are all the promises useless? Can God beat the nations? Can God get victory over nations? Because they beat us. Where was our God? And now he's affirming who he is. We know that uh, all it says in, it's hard to see with the lights, but verse 2, who, it's the one from the east here, but if you go on and, as I said, it's 40 to 48, it's one section, um, we know it's Cyrus. He says later in chapter 44, who says of Cyrus, uh, he is my shepherd and, and, and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. And then chapter 48 uh, the Lord says, Cyrus is uh, the, the Lord's chosen ally. He will carry out his purpose against Babylon. So not only will, will the Lord use Cyrus to set his people free from Babylon, in, a, in like a second exodus, he's going to use Cyrus to build the temple and restore Jerusalem. And this is, this is 160 years before the event. We have the name of the person. We have precise detail about the very deeds he's going to do. He's going to conquer Babylon. He's going to build the, help build the temple or release the people to build the temple. And he's going to restore the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is predictive prophecy. 160 years uh, before. Pastor Joe probably, in this series on the uh, prophetic, he asked me to do something on prophecy because it was the, the, your theme. So he's probably told you there's two types of 
uh, prophecy in the Bible. There's uh, foretelling and foretelling. In the first foretelling, uh, which is the, the, the majority of the cases, God speaks in the present through a prophet. But in foretelling, which is what we're seeing here, which often happens in Scripture, in the Old and the New Testament, God is predicting the future. He is revealing a secret of, of, of his plan. He's revealing to his prophets his secret, what he's going to do in the future. That's what's going on with Cyrus. So this is foretelling, not foretelling. Verse 4, so that... <clears throat> That would be the first thing, my first major point, simply that God is foretelling, he's, he's saying, predicting that he will restore Zion through Cyrus. He's the king of Persia, and he's going to do this through Cyrus. This is the first prediction we have here. If we look at verse, uh, verse 4, we'll give the second major point. Who has done this and carried, uh, carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last... I am he. So this is a second point and a big one is in terms of this is prophecy is foretelling we're talking about is evidence of divinity and of the incomparability of God. We'll follow this through. We'll develop it step by step. But the <clears throat> prophecy, foretelling prophecy, when God predicts the future, he reveals his plan to us. This is evidence of divinity, that he is God and not the idol. And it's also evidence of his incomparability. There is no one like him. The key word here is who, just that simple word who. It echoes uh, again in verse 2, uh, who is going to stir up, stir up Cyrus. Um, now he says, he tells us who. It's a rhetorical question. Who? It's the Lord. I, the Lord, do this, the first and the last. And then uh, it just shows, but not only Cyrus, but now he, he calls forth all the generations from the beginning. So this is the utter sovereignty of our God over history. It's not just predicting Cyrus, but he is calling all the generations forth from the beginning. And what's incredible, too, and when you look at this in the New Testament, okay, this is Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Revelations chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. He is taking the very title of God and applying it to himself. I am the first and the last. Amazing. All that's true of God is true of, uh, true of the Son. So where, how does it go to incomparability? It's the word who, because we here have it twice in verses 1 to 4, who, who. That, that language is often tied to the incomparability of God. Scholars say that, the, uh, like Walter Kaiser will say, that this who, when God is talking about the Sioux language, and it's a rhetorical question, he's often introducing his, his incomparability. And we just, if you go back to chapter 40, just before, God has gives you a string of who's that introduces his incomparability. So this is a literary echo. When you read who in chapter 41, you should be thinking if you read chapter 4, I just read that. Some, so go back, and what is he talking about? There's a link to it. Verse, uh, verse 12 and 13, chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who, and, or with the breath of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to, to enlighten him? Verse 17. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as, as worthless and less than nothing. Verse 18. Uh, to whom then... After all this declaration of who he is, his greatness, he's the creator, he's the awesome creator of everything, the universe, 
uh, we're talking about Artemis going to the moon, and we, the articles recently about Voyager 1 way out at the edge of our solar system. Uh, and we, us as a, the whole solar system would be like a speck of dirt on my finger in this room. That's how huge the universe is. And he's, he's measuring it by his hand. He's greater than that, is what, is what Isaiah is saying. He's greater than the universe. He's greater than the nations. They're compared to me, I am incomparable. Who are you going to compare me to? The nations are a drop in a bucket. The universe, I made the whole thing. I'm greater than even the great universe that makes us so crushingly small. The, the nations, they're worthless. The rulers, I blow on them and they're gone. All through this whole thing is the incomparability of God because he's so great. Verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? This is the, where God's getting at this. There's a whole court case going on about the idols and God. And he said, you can't compare me to any image because Israel's doing it. You can't compare me to any image. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Lord, the Holy One. So again, we get this incredible, the incomparability of God so clear, but it's who, 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 who. And then in chapter 41, we start with the who again. Link. There's, okay, God is still discussing his incomparability. He's still discussing his greatness. So his ability to predict the future and declare that Cyrus will come 160 years, and he knows exactly what Cyrus is going to do 160 years before, and then it's fulfilled, is part of the greatness of our God, part of the incomparability of our God, and it's what distinguishes him from the idols. No idol can do this. This is what the court case is going to settle. Who is the true God? Who is the true God? Because Israel's bowing to idols. That was her problem was idolatry. She's worshiping idols. She's even saying, my idols did this and predicted Cyrus, not, not, predicted other things. But he's saying, no, no, you didn't even know of this. I am the one true God. Bring in your idols. Nations come in. Israel come in. You are my witnesses. Who is the true God? Your idols, the idols of the nations, or the one true Lord? And if it's the idols, when did they predict? That's what's going on here. So the Lord's prediction about the coming of Cyrus is evidence of his incomparability. Back in chapter 41, he's, he's summoning them to the, we've seen verses 1 to 4, he summoned the, the nations to, the, to this trial, then he talks about idols in verse, <coughs> verses 5 to 7, and then he, then he goes on um, in 21 to 24 and describes his trial. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols. Tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them. So past prophecies. Did you predict them and then they were fulfilled afterward? Did you predict it and then did you do it? So that may consult them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that we may know you are gods. Wow. God's, okay, you want it. you're saying, Israel, you're worshiping idols, the nations are worshiping idols. What's the proof of divinity? What is the proof of the incomparability of God that you can predict the future and cause it to come to pass? That you are Lord of history. And God wants to know. He doesn't want any other idol, any other God. He will not accept, give his glory to any other idol. 
And he will establish the truth that he is the one true God and there is no other. That was the cry of Israel day and night in the Shema. You just, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord is one, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. He's the one and only. Verse 25 to 29. We'll continue from 22. <clears throat> Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with the, the mockery. <laughs> this is highly intolerant. Let's put it bluntly. This is highly intolerant. I wouldn't recommend this, but this is, that's the way it is in Scripture. Isaiah and the Lord have no time for false gods. Do something. Then another verse, and there's a long list about the idols. It said they have to nail them so that they don't topple down. It's, it's dripping with sarcasm. On the level of mutual respect, we have always respect for one another. Other religions, that's always there. But on the level of truth, God will not tolerate falsehood. But you are less than nothing, and, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. We're talking about Cyrus again. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if they were potter treading on the clay. Who told of this from the beginning? So we could know. He's challenging the idols. Did you predict this? Are you God? Are you God? Tell us. Predict something, and we'll know you're God. I'm, the Lord is God because he predicted us. Israel is his witness. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one. No one. That's the usual answer to the who question. It's either the Lord or no one else. No one can do what you do. Who, who told of this? No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion. Look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem the messenger of good tidings. I looked, but there is no one. No one among them that gave counsel. No one to give answer when I asked them. So they are all False. All the idols are false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. God's passionate about this because he's passionate about his own glory. He will not give his glory to any other. He will not. So verse 23 really makes it clear. Tell us what the future holds that we may know that you are God. So, so prophecy is foretelling is not only evidence of incomparability. We saw the who, who, so it's linked to the incomparability of God, the fact he's, for, he's, he's telling, foretelling about Cyrus. It's proof of deity. Predictive prophecy is proof of deity. That's what's going on here. He, God says it, and then he fulfills the word because he's Lord of history. And Israel is, is the witness. He calls, in chapter 44, he calls Israel as a witness. But she's blind. She's the, uh, she's the blind <clears throat> because he, she's uh, serving uh, idol, uh, idols. And then God is, in this context, well, th this is addressed to Israel, but he's calling the nations to the trial. So what's going on? He's talking to Israel. Israel is an idolatry. He's wooing her back, giving uh, proof of who he is from prophecy. So this court is not only about who predicted Cyrus. It's about who is the true God. Who is the true God? Predictive prophecy establishes who the true God is. And we're not used to the polytheistic societies necessarily. We're secular. But in this context, it's many gods and it's a, it's a constant battle. Who is the true God? And this is what this trial is. 
And God, a court, a court is where you establish truth. That's where you, uh, so God is interested, intensely interested in truth. That's why the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And we have the, the, the revelation, the word of God. He, he wants the truth. He wants the, in the court, you use evidence to establish truth, what really happened. And he's, he'll say, come on, then we'll have a court with the, with the nations. And give us the facts. Tell us who prophesied, who predicted Cyrus. Not, no, no one, not one. You're worthless, therefore. You are not God. You can't say, you know, he says later, I, 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 the Lord, reveal and save and proclaim. But he does it in a court because he wants the truth and he wants the truth known to everybody. And that, this, this, this zeal for his glory, the zeal for the truth of his name, the zeal of that he's the one true God, it is so offensive in our society. There's no way around it. The moment you say, well, this is the absolute truth and, and Jesus is God and Allah is not God, uh, you're going to cause a firestorm. Respect everybody, love everybody. But on the level of truth, you cannot say, uh, both cannot be true at the same time. If, the, uh, if God has a son, and then in Islam they say in, in uh, Mecca, when you go on Mecca, it says the, God has no son. Two totally incompatible statements. They both can't be true at the same time. Second prophecy comes about a second individual that God will send to restore uh, Zion. Verse, chapter 22, verses 1 to 9. But this one, this name, we know who Cyrus is, um, but we don't have a name for this servant. It's different, but there's another, a servant that comes, an unidentified servant. So third point is that God also predicts that he will restore Zion and save the nations through a servant. Chapter 20, 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will, shout, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break <clears throat> and a smoldering wick he will not uh, snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Verse 6, I the Lord have called you, another calling, I have called you in righteousness. I take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. And a light for the people referring to Israel. And a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So in verse 8, again, he's talking about predictive prophecies, uh, and that he's revealing the future and not idols. And this whole thing is very important, because when he says, uh, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols, what is the context? What does that mean, the glory? What does that mean here? He is the one who predicts what the future he is the one who controls the fulfillment of, of what he says so his glory here is that we just seen and that what makes him god the incomparable god is predictive prophecy and he will not give it to idols because israel is saying my idols did, if you read on further my idols did this he said i know you were rebellious and stubborn that you would say such a thing he will not give his uh, glory to another his this saying to another god that he has the ability to predict the future that's what's going on here so predictive prophecy is part of the glory of God. You can't get more foundational.
So in verse 9, he says that, see, the former things have, have come, new things I declare. So now he's giving a summary. It's both the new things. What's the new thing? It's the servant we've just read about. And just before that, Cyrus. These are the new things that God is declaring. Both Cyrus, both the servant, both are necessary to restore Zion, which is the theme of the next 20 chapters. So we know from verse 1, he mentions a servant, but we don't know who he is. The last time he's, uh, he mentioned a servant uh, was in just in the previous chapter. If you're reading in context, you're okay with servant. What is, is, he, is it mentioned before? Yeah, just the previous chapter. He's talking about Israel. Verse, uh, verses 8 to 11, chapter 41. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear. I am with you. And then he goes on and says that he's going to use Israel and they'll get victory over, over their enemies. So here, um, this is the servant. So when we hear the word servant again, we should be thinking of Israel. Like when we look at this, we hear the servant, we know it's Jesus. That's true. Not too fast. Let's look in the Old Testament. What does Isaiah think before we jump to the New Testament? It's true, it's Jesus. But we're going to miss some stuff if we go directly to the New Testament and interpret the Old Testament through the New. What is Isaiah saying? Who is the servant? Well, the first thing we see, there's an identification with Israel. Because Israel, the language servant is used of Israel. And then in chapter 49, it says that about the individual servant, again, the one we just read about in 42, he says, you are my servant, uh, Israel. So this individual is called Israel. And then in verse 6, it says, but it's too small a thing for me, uh, to, for you to be my servant to bring Israel back. So how can you, Israel bring Israel back? So you have an individual that's distinct from Israel, but related to Israel. So in other words, uh, <clears throat> this servant fulfills what Israel was supposed to do. It, he represents Israel in some way. So that's, that's, when you do it that way, then we understand something we would miss if we just jumped right to the New Testament. So he represents Israel. The other thing we can see is that um, there's literary links. If you look at, uh, he's, he brings justice. He's anointed by the Spirit. He brings justice. If you read the whole of Isaiah, that should be you know, setting up a memory in your mind of Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11. There's the, the king that will come. There's a king who's going to uh, come and he'll be anointed by the Spirit to bring justice. So it, it's, they're linked. So this servant is the Messiah. That's what Isaiah is saying. The servant is the same as the Isaiah. They're both the same as the, as the, the messianic king. So it's a servant king that we're, gonna ta- we're talking about here. He's anointed by the spirit. He's going to bring justice to the nations. Uh, both talk about the sword in the mouth or, the, or the, with his mouth he's going to slay. Both talk about that language. There's an anointing for justice. In, in the Old Testament, justice is the function of a king. And now we're saying in Isaiah 42, this servant is going to bring justice to the nations. He will not falter until he brings this justice. So it's, he's a universal king. He's a universal king. Well, you go back to the Isaiah 9 and 11, then you've got the seed of David, who is this universal king. He's anointed by the spirit like the servant, and he's going to bring justice to the nations, and he's going to strike things with his mouth. A lot of ties there. So that we're dealing with the same person, I believe. So we're dealing with a... A servant, the servant is a servant king who represents Israel. That's what, who the servant is. He 
You see also that the, the servant is, is a covenant for the people, so that's a covenant for Israel. So Jesus is going to come, and he's going he's to um, deliver Israel spiritually. He's a covenant to the people, Israel, and a light for the Gentiles. So as he's restoring Israel, he's going to be saving the nations at the same time. He's bringing salvation. So God's salvation um, is, is mediated through Jesus. The salvation to the nations, this we all know from the New Testament, but, but, it's, it, but this is where we get it from. <clears throat> he's, he's going to, God's going to bring his salvation uh, to Israel and the nations through Jesus. I think it's important to know when you keep hearing this language of servant and, 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 and these scriptures, Jesus is a servant, uh, Israel is a servant, it's the language of Moses and David and the whole, you know, the whole people of Israel, the servant of God. It's a key term for understanding our relationship with the Lord. They're different metaphors of our relationship with God. We are the bride of Christ, he is the bride, we are the children of God, he is the father. There's different aspects, but servant is, is crucial because it keeps coming up here. A servant is somebody who lives for the will of the master. That means if we're servants, that means God is master. That means God is king. And we exist to fulfill his will. Paul even talks about that he's the slave of Christ. He's the slave of Christ. The slave had no ownership of himself. He had no agenda for himself. He had no right to himself. All his right was to do the bidding of the master. He was owned by the master. That's what a slave is. So slave and servant, you, you, you relate to God as master, you, as your king. You exist to fulfill his will. It's a privileged relationship. It's still a term of a relationship because servants had high places in the, in the royal king, in the kingdom of God and the administration of, of the kingdom of God. So David, significant figure. Moses, significant figure. Servants, so we're priests and kings, significant figures. But we exist not for ourselves but to please the master. It's fundamental to our identity as Christians, along with being the bride of Christ and the children of God. One thing to ask, well, we see predictive prophecy in the, New, in the Old Testament. Is it, does it exist in the New? And yeah, Agabus is a good example. He, he prophesies to Paul, and he, said, he tells him about his, his own personal life, that you're going to be handed over in Jerusalem. So details done precisely. So predictive prophecy about a personal life, and he also prophesies a famine, something, something more general. So we see predictive prophecy going on in the New Testament also. Does it happen today? Well, is the Spirit still present? Yes. And because when the Spirit comes, the gifts are released. We will dream dreams and visions. We'll have visions. Prophecy is released. The gifts of the Spirit are released because the Spirit was poured out. And it's still there. So predictive prophecy still goes on. I went to Bible school uh, in 1990. Uh, it was in Kansas City, Grace Training Center. Uh, Mike Bickle was over it. He, he's the founder of uh, what became IHOP, International House of Prayer. They do 24-7 prayer. And uh, so when we went to that school, my wife and I, um, there was a prophet there named Bob Jones. That was my introduction to predictive prophecy and, and all this, all the, uh, some, of the, some of the stuff, seeing the gifts operate so, uh, today. And... Uh, he met uh, Mike Bickle, the pastor, in 1983 when Mike came to, to, uh, to Kansas City. And he didn't know Mike at all. Mike was a young man. I'm giving Bob Jones as an example of predictive prophecy functioning today. And he said to Mike, uh, and he, again, they'd never met before, and Mike was just new to the city. He says, and he, was, he used to be a youth pastor, he said, you will lead a worldwide, uh, this is 1983, 
almost 40 years ago, you will lead a worldwide youth movement of singers and musicians who will be used in power evangelism that will mobilize prayer for Israel and receive abundant grace in the prophetic and intercession. The Lord will place you next to President Harry Truman's property in Grandview in Kansas as a sign and a wonder. Truman was a political inter intercessor for Israel, and God used him to establish Israel as a nation in 1948. This youth movement will be spiritual intercessors for Israel. They're not, they're not, some of them weren't even born yet. <clears throat> he also said that uh, they would have a, uh, Mike would have a great connection with believers throughout Asia. They would be watching singers on the Truman property through unplugged TV sets. 1983 didn't have the language for smartphones. Unplugged TV sets, sets sorry. So what happened? Mike's there and he's starting doing this church. And there was no 24-7 prayer. He was talking about a 24-7. And he wasn't a worship leader. He wasn't into singing. He was, he was doing some prayer. But no 20. So that's what happened. He, Bob Jones, the Lord, predicted the future. Glory to be to God, not to the prophet. God is still showing his incomparability, his divinity, his greatness through his ability to, to reveal to us the future. They, they, got a pro they had a, a building right on this property next to Harry Truman's property. They got the building, then they got the property. It was multiple, multiple millions of dollars. They got it for $1 million, and that $1 million was a gift. So they got, they're on Harry Truman's property. They have singers. They've had... 24-7 uh, uh, prayer. They've been 20 million uh, man-hours of prayers since 1999. And the, all these singers are going up. Worship is going up. And one of their key mandates is praying for Israel. They are interceding for Israel on the place of Harry Truman, who was key in getting the establishment of Israel because the United States accepted that in the UN when Israel was born in 48. And they had, like, like a few years ago, they had a thousand Chinese people come to their meetings there uh, and they're being, they're being watched from Asia, Asia on unplugged TV sets, smartphones. All fulfilled. It's still today, folks. It's still today because God doesn't change and the Spirit's been released. So my last point is just from the last section. What, how do we respond? How do you respond to this incomparable God? We don't have to fear any nations. We don't have to fear what's going on in the world, all these nations and persecution, and because he's, they're nothing compared to him. And, and his ability to predict the future, he has the sovereign, he's the sovereign Lord of history. History is in his hand. How do we respond? Well, according to Isaiah, he, he tells us in chapter 41, verses 12. Sorry, 42, verse 12, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You will go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its town raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Give, let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. So that's my last point. God's, what is the expected response to the greatness of God, to the, his ability to predict the future and fulfill it, uh, fulfill his word? and that he is the one true Lord. It's praise. It's worship. It's fundamental. This is, singing here on Sunday is not just some thing we do in order to do church. It's much more than that. Worship, this is his due. This is, what, we, this is his, what he expects of us as the people of God. This is his due. We owe him this because he's been so great and so awesome and so powerful in our lives, saving, delivering, uh, and, and healing, and uh, opening our eyes, teaching us the truth, guiding us in the right way, and that he's 
that he's fulfilling history. Even Jesus, he's proclaiming what's going to happen in the future. Matthew 24, Revelation, we know what's going to happen in advance. So we are secure that we're confident God is in control no matter all the nation shaking and, and wars and everything else and pestilence. It's, he told you, he says, I told you beforehand. So we can lift, draw, your redemption is drawing near. Lift your heads on high. We have confidence in our Father no matter how crazy it gets here. And the response he's looking for is worship. Praise. As a lifestyle, constantly praising. It's not just two, a few minutes on Sunday morning. That, that's important and crucial because we get trained in it. But all our lives at home and worship just flowing to the throne. Praise. This is his due. This is what he expects. That, why do you think he had 24-7 worship in, in, in Israel? We don't do it today. That's under the old covenant. But it shows a principle. Why would he have 24-7 praise going up to him? Because it's important. It's the expected response. Our life should be a life of praise. A sacrificial offering is our obedience, but praise going up to him, he wants it. It's his due. We must give it to him and live in a life of praise. That's the expected response to his ability to predict the future. So just to conclude, four things we said. The Lord predicts that it will restore Zion through Cyrus. Two, prophecy is uh, foretelling is evidence of divinity and of the incomparability of our God. Three, God also predicts that he will restore Zion and save the nations through his servant. And last, the expected response to the Lord's incomparable deity, deity shown in prophecy and its fulfillment, is worship or praise. So if we can have the worship team up, maybe we can conclude in praise. I just invite, I think we still have time, Jonathan, for one song. So let's just, let's give our hearts to God. He's done so much for us. You've got every reason to praise him. Right now, right here, let's just praise him and, and, and give him the glory that's due his name. And then after, if you have any questions or you want prayer, I'll be down here or over there.
Just on Sunday, remember that. Have a great weekend.